Hi, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Today is my conversation with Malcolm Geit. Um, I was really privileged to speak with Malcolm um, because he is just a, he's like a luminous figure. He's a poet and, uh, and an author and a singer-songwriter and Anglican priest and an academic and all kinds of things. But despite all the things he does, I never really feel like he fits in one kind of category or career, except for maybe poet, because he, he really like lives and breathes um, the written word and just uses it so effectively. Um, and he's got a YouTube show called um, called A Spell in the Library uh, that he's been doing during the pandemic that I've, I've really enjoyed, where you get to kind of go into his world and he talks about poetry. Um, and poetry, like poetry and spirituality are two things that have, becoming, have been becoming increasingly important to me uh, through the course of the podcast. So uh, we really delve into uh, a lot of spiritual themes and specifically the story of the transfiguration in the Bible. Um, I wanted Malcolm's take on it. Um, because it's, I've struggled to kind of, I've understood the passage, I think somewhat, but I've never, um, felt it. You know, it's Jesus face glowing, showing his disciples, his true form. Um, and so, yeah, this is a a particularly Christian conversation, although I don't think you need to be a Christian to appreciate it. Um, I hope you like it, uh, like, and subscribe, uh, for, for more of this kind of content and, Without further blabbing from me, here's my conversation with Malcolm Geit. So, yeah, I'll just say, Malcolm Geit, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Um, well, it is such a pleasure to 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 have you here. You've been, I, I don't know, I think probably for a lot of people, you've been kind of a comforting presence uh, with during the pandemic with your um, YouTube uh, videos. You know, being invited, yeah. being invited into your your study and the way that you do that with the knocking on the door. And... Yeah, well, that, that was quite a fun thing. It, that was a completely new departure for me because um, I hadn't, I mean, I was aware of YouTube, but I didn't know how it worked. I didn't have a channel or anything like that. But on the day our first, and I must say very severe lockdown was introduced, it was sort of overnight, you know, we didn't quite, the prime minister just came on one evening and said, from tomorrow, stay at home. You know, you can only go out for an hour's exercise sort of thing. And I was realizing I'd have to do my chaplaincy from home rather than from college. And I'm very used to having my door, you know, open and available and students just dropping in and just for a chat. And I'd pull a book off the shelves and think, and I thought, well, I really, I'm going to miss that. I wonder if I can learn YouTube and work out how to do it. I'm very unsophisticated. So none of those films is edited. I don't even know how to trim them. But my wife kindly agreed to be, as it were, the proxy for my visitors. And so she knocks on the door, you know. (laughs) Well, then I welcome her in and imagine it's you, as it were. And then right. um, we just take it from there. And I think about it for about five minutes before we start. And then that's it. You know, we just do it. Yeah, it, so. it's it's really good. I mean, it does seem very impromptu in a lot of ways, which is so nice. And I think it's just one of one more example of kind of a slightly magical thing that would only have happened because of the pandemic. Yeah. You know? I mean, is this this whole, you know, it's a pity to have a flat screen and all the rest of it, but this is astonishing that we can do this and it has enabled all kinds of... Yeah, I agree with you. I'm glad you used the word magical. That's an important word to me. And I call that series, that whole series, I call it a spell in the library, you know, playing with the word, oh, sit here for a spell, you know, i.e. a short period of time. 
but also a magical spell and also the magical spell that comes out of the magic of spelling and writing and reading you know it's the library so all well, those things that. are sort of woven together yeah it's a lot it's more layered than i had thought i hadn't thought about the name very deeply but yeah that's that's perfect um and yeah and i've really enjoyed those so um one of the reasons that i have really enjoyed your work and the fact that you're a little bit of an apologist for poetry on the internet, you know, in, in a way, because I, I yeah. don't have a deep background in poetry. Um, my, my father was extremely influenced by the, by Lewis and Tolkien and, and read them aloud to us. Oh, that's great. That's the uh, way to hear, you know. That's... Yeah. And now I've read, uh, I've read a lot of Lewis to my young children. Uh, Tolkien, they, they weren't quite ready for, they I think they liked The yeah. Hobbit. They can um, sort of, you know, the Hobbit's really the children's one, but they can discover, yeah. discover the rest. Yeah, my dad, we did the Narnia books and the Hobbit. My dad read the Hobbit brilliantly. He did the, uh, he had a great voice for Gandalf and he did the trolls in wonderful Yorkshire accents. So that's oh, nice. Cool. And I then think... he started the Lord of the Rings with us and then we were away at school in England. Sort of, but I sort of got the bug. So, you know, I think I was probably about 16 or 17. I got a battered old uh, paperback copy of the lord of the rings for myself my dad had a lovely i think more or less first edition which now i now have which he bought oh, wow when it came out but um i just bought this tatty old paperback of it and just got completely absorbed in it uh, as a 16 and 17 year old and I, I can't i probably couldn't count the number of times i've reread it since then it's a world i love to inhabit and explore yeah, I, I mean i must say even I, I have personally not yet read the lord of the rings uh on my own um but the because of having it read to me as a young person it, it's it's definitely like there in my mind and i think it forms a lot of the language uh like i have just found it in adulthood uh poetic language has started to come more from me than it used to maybe because of yeah. some kind of personal investment in reality based on having children that i never had yeah, absolutely. And of course both lewis and talking are soaked in poetry and of course the Lord of the Rings contains, I mean, it's poetic prose from start to finish, but it also contains quite a lot of actual poetry in all the songs, you know, that they sing. Yeah, and, and yeah, he was song. such a he was such a kind of polymathic, if that's even a word, poly, polymathian writer, like a yeah. linguist and, and uh, prose and yeah. poetry all spun together. But um, what I what I'm noticing, because I was reflecting on this conversation, what and what I might want to um, glean from you and i think so i so that was my kind of my background that was the 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 height of kind of in in my life that was the most sustained experience of something like that that i had was was my dad reading lord of the rings and he liked all that kind of yeah. stuff and then i feel like as i got older um i lost i lost the poetic drive like we would talk about poetry in school and well, that sometimes kill it, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's true. It's true. And it might have done so for me because yeah, well, it, I it remember feeling the poetry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I just say it depends on how it's taught. You know, there are good English teachers and bad English teachers. Yeah. You always feel a slight shudder and they say, well, we're going to do Shakespeare or we're going to do. And you feel like they do it to death, you know, that they. Yeah. There's a there's a fine American poet, uh, Billy Collins. He was the Texas Poet Laureate, I think. He's got a fantastic poem about poetry and about escaping from the way it was taught in school. He talks about a bad English teacher. He says, he says she was the kind of teacher whose idea was that you should 
tie the poem to a chair and beat it with a hosepipe till it confessed what it meant. And, <laughs> and he says, but I wanted to put my ear up to the murmuring hive of the poem and wonder what honey its innumerable bees were making. You know, that's oh, wonderful. That's so good. I remember saying once to a friend who was studying literature that it sometimes felt like um, the, the academic study of literature was like chasing down a fawn in the forest and, you know, holding it and look at its eyes, look at it, look, like turn it around, look at its tail. Isn't its tail wonderful? And, you know, like, yeah, yeah. so you've got to make things. I mean, of course, there's a place for opening up and studying, noticing the wonderful things the poet is doing. But you've got to do that in a way that's consonant with the poem and keeps it alive and breathing, you know. Yeah. 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 A memory that sticks out for me. I'm sorry, I interrupted you there. No, 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 it's fine. Go, go ahead. A memory that sticks out for me was at a time when um, I was we were discussing a book in school and I can't remember what book, but I um, I got very excited that I felt like I had discovered a, a meaning in something that was said. And the teacher just said, no, 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 it means this. Um, oh, no, and, that's no good. And, because and, the whole point about poetry is that it's it's polyvalent or it's uh, polysemous. It, it's, it has many values and many meanings. And and uh, I mean, I can tell you from my own experience as a poet now that it often has more in it than you know is there because all the words you use are older and wiser than you are. And if you're dealing with mythopoeic, mythic level story, it's got meanings. You're kind of steward of those things, but it doesn't mean you know them all or understand them all. And your teacher doesn't know or understand them all either. You might well have had a, an insight to that poem that was not only valid for you, but might have been valid for everyone else in the class, actually. So yeah. the teacher should have welcomed that yeah. rather than jumping on it. Yeah, I mean, I could have been, I could have honestly been totally out to lunch, but I, I still feel like the react the reaction to that, it kind of did like push me back down into a hole. And I, I mean, I don't mean to to bellyache or anything, but uh, I just, uh, yeah, I think it's possible that that education can can drive that out. Um, but uh, so over the course of time, it wasn't just poetry that that went away. Uh, I feel I, I actually feel like a sense of just general glory of life and, and, and magic and 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 all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, ebbed away. I was still steeped in religion technically like my uh yeah. my dad my dad was a pastor and scripture right. was scripture was constantly around everywhere um and yet i just had this this yawning indifference to it you know like yeah 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 and it was almost like i couldn't read scripture and and i couldn't read poetry and it's something yeah. i i something i still struggle to this day with getting my brain to calm down and relax and i've i've tried to to follow your instructions of reading poetry aloud and follow your example of yeah, reading yeah, it yeah. slowly and deliberately and and i have had a reawakening i'm sorry there's so much biographical information here this is kind <laughs> of <laughs> it tends to be how my how my conversations start so that it can be an, a place a place that i'm invested in um yeah. but uh, since i have you know since i had children and and i started to i basically had to kind of put all all religion aside for a little bit and decide if i if, if it was something that i could uh pass on to them in good conscience and lo and yeah. behold the still small voice was um yeah was there it never it, it was it, it was just not it was a desire to not be 
an atheist, I guess. Uh, that yeah, was yeah. that was such a minimal, low level, tiny little thing, and it's grown now to where I, I can I actually um, am finding joy in poetry and scripture. Um, but I feel like it's something that should have happened for me, you know, yeah. at a very young age. Like I've heard it happen for other people, and and even poetry has started to come to to me to write like things that I have to mm. open up a file and start typing it out uh, out of yeah. out of my brain. And and so um, this is kind of leading to the to the topic here because yeah. I was um, uh, I was asked by by the uh, priest at our at our Anglican church to if, if I was interested in preaching a sermon uh, and I think he's being very kind to me by nurturing uh, this kind of awakening uh, interest in all of this that's happening and he he assigned yeah. me I said yes which surprised even me uh, and then he he assigned me the transfiguration and i read well, the great thing to be assigned is i'm realizing that now yeah like i'm i'm kind of i i said okay sure he said how about the the transfiguration and i said okay sure and i went and read it and i was like i know that i've read this before and it's it, it made me feel like i had had been sort of almost something in my mind has been quashed or something because I, I how how have i read this before and never um it's it's never made an impact on me it's always been like okay his, his face was glowing and and you know like the three tabernacles i resonated with the three uh, let, let us build three three shelters three yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because i thought that would be my stupid thing i would say in that situation oh, yeah, it's kind of quite cool like peter one of the i always find you know, Peter's quite a sympathetic character because he always gets it wrong. He's always sort of putting his foot in it. I mean, he's he's very keen, but he, he kind of doesn't get it in the same way that, say, John gets it straight away or, or Nathaniel, you know, when he sees Jesus suddenly realizes who he is. But yeah. uh, I rather like that. I remember hearing somebody preach on that passage of the Transfiguration that, about, you know, this, this ineffable, beautiful, uncapturable, utterly given moment happens and you have to be in it. And... Peter almost can't stand the transcendent beauty and he wants to frame it or control it in some way. And he yeah. builds it And the, the preacher said, you know what he's like? He's like that really annoying wedding photographer who sort of makes everybody stand still and go back and reposes them so they're sick of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's true. It's... Yeah, and, and that's the part of the story that I can most relate to is, is maybe this, uh, I don't know, this reluctance or this this inability to just just live with glory you know it's like let's point out the glory there uh, it's not it's not at all like the vision of ezekiel say where he you know he sees all the eyes and the wheels and the wings and it's like so totally mind-blowing and it bears no relation to any of his ordinary earthly experience i mean that's that's a kind of vision that's a kind of transcendental vision but it's not transfiguration the point about the transfiguration it seems to me is that this is the same jesus they climbed the mountain with this is the guy they've seen sweating exhausted by the well and left him by the woman at the well when they went to get food this is the guy you know who 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 they're going to see a little later mocked and humiliated and stripped and flogged and apparently defeated in utter weakness and then they're going to remember that glory and see how that glory is at work the point is that it's still the same jesus utterly transfigured utterly radiant but 
but just as much flesh and blood mm. as they are. And I mean, a lot of a lot of commentators, certainly the early early church commentators, have seen very direct parallels between that moment of transfiguration on the mountain, when Jesus is radiant but still completely Jesus. He's not, as it were, abstracted and consumed by the radiance. It shines through what Dante calls the holy and glorious flesh. A lot of commentators have compared that with the archetypal moment, which in a sense prepares for it, of Moses and the burning bush on Mount Horeb, where Moses goes up, this is in Exodus 3, you know, where he, he, um, He's minding his, you know, he's doing his own thing. He's not expecting to have a transcendent and transfigurative moment. He's just minding. He's a bit of a failure in life. You know, he screwed up things in Egypt. He's in exile. Like the only job he can get is with his father-in-law. You know, he's like looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And he suddenly sees this bush. I mean, there's loads of bushes, you know, in the scrubby Judean wilderness. But he sees this bush and it's blazing, but not consumed. That's the point. It's not consumed. It's still the rooted, bushy bush that it was. But now, as it were, shining through it, transfiguring it, trans being through, transfiguring it, like transpire is, you know, what leaves do when the air and the water through, is this radiant light. And he's just astonished by that. And he turns aside. And then when he turns aside to see this thing, then he's addressed by the bush. You know, and then he realizes there's something, you know, and he does the right thing. He doesn't try to build any booths. In fact, it's the opposite of building booths. You have to unstrap and take off all your human constructions. So the voice, as you remember, says, Moses, Moses, take off thy shoes from off thy feet for the place where thou art standing is holy ground. Mm. And then he comes forward and he's he disclosed the divine name, you know, the I am. And the, the bush speaks in the person of God and says, I am the God of your father. Now, of course, I am is a key word there. And eventually he devolves the whole name. The actual tell, you know, what, what he asks, what shall I tell the children of Israel? The name is tell the children of Israel that I am has sent you. And that becomes the tetragrammaton, the, the, the very holy name of God. And it is I amness. So, and of course, all of that is recapitulated in, in John's gospel when Jesus uses those great I am sayings, it's sort of ego, Amy, you know, I am. But you remember, at the transfiguration, if I mean, when when Moses sees that, there is God speaking and saying, here I am. And a lot of church commentators, early commentators said, well, this, this is extraordinary. This is almost like a, a, a foreshadowing or foreshowing, forelighting rather than foreshadow of the coming of Jesus. Because the thing about Jesus is that he is fully God and fully human. The two things coexist at exactly the same time, and neither of them, as it were, annihilates or overlays the other. They're resplendently together. And that is the case in the bush. The bush is fully ablaze, but not consumed. So they saw this as an anticipation of the incarnation and the coming of Jesus. And of course, the point of the story is that Moses is there when the transfiguration happens. And some people have said, well, maybe it's not like he's been popped out of heaven to, you know, hang out with Jesus and the disciples. Maybe that is his moment. For him, he's seeing the burning bush. For them, they're seeing Christ. They're kind of, they're at the moment where the moments meet. Oh. The moment. That was, do you know what I mean? Uh, that, that, that was what I was trying to get at 
Um, and that, and Elijah, of course, also has a mountaintop experience of the presence of God. And um, so I, I yeah. tried to get that in, in my own poem on the transformation. I mean, maybe this is a point just to bring it in, but I tried to get uh, transfiguration. I tried to get that, um, that sense that, um, let's just see if I can find it here. Yeah, here's, here's the, 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 just as on a mountain, you can go on all different paths around a mountain, but if you're going up, then all the different paths will meet at a certain point. Oh, uh, yeah. Moment in and out of time. It's the same moment, in a sense, the same mountain of Moses and Elijah. Mm. Now they've this point too. They're coming out of different points in the long string of time. Uh, it. So that's why you say in that moment, in and out of time. Yeah. So, so I'll just I'll read this bit just because you know it might be helpful at this point for thinking about. I, it. I was hoping you would because I have it on my screen too, but it'll be better in your voice. Transfiguration, for that one moment in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell, <coughs> dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leapt up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within. A sudden blaze of long extinguished hope trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of who of how things really are now in the gospel account you may remember they have this moment of transfiguration then they come down from the mountain and the first thing they jesus does is turn his face towards jerusalem and the passion really begins there they then go from that mountain to jerusalem into the utter darkness of good friday and i imagined the reason why i end the poem with that um that couplet, nor can this blackened voice. Clearly, my poem is voiced for one of the disciples, either Peter, James, or John, who witnessed it. And um, I imagine them standing in the darkness when this when the sun at noon is darkened, the exact opposite of transfiguration. What should be blazing is dark uh, on Good Friday, looking up at Jesus dying or dead on the cross and remembering that and realizing they were meant to have seen that and that what they saw there was the way Jesus really is, the, the, the ultimate reality of things. So nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how, of how things really are. So my idea of the transfiguration is not that Jesus changed for a minute, but that for a minute, they saw things as they are. And that's why when I say um, the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkened glass fell dazzled at his feet, I, the phrase darkened glass is an allusion to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, 13, where he says, you know, for now we see as it were through a glass darkly now we only know in part then we shall fully now we see as it were as we are fully known through the glass darkly then we shall know as full as as we are fully known then we shall see face to face you see hmm. 
So I take it that transfiguration, when it happens, whether it happens like this with an experience of Jesus, or whether it happens as in so much of the great mystical nature poetry of the Romantics, for example, Wordsworth and Coleridge, when you have these moments of transfiguration, what's happening is that you're really seeing things. The world is actually glorious and resplendent at all times, but our fall is such that our eyes are darkened and we don't see. And that's why people often experience transfiguration as a kind of awakening you know, or enlightenment because they're, and we can't sustain it for too long. You know, we sort of fall back into the ordinary day. Yeah. We should never forget the moment when it happens. And I think it happens more often than people realize. I think it happens for people who have no concept of, of, you know, no explicit concept of Christ. I think whenever you have the, whenever you have the feeling of, of uh, hope, uh, unexplainable hope that that yeah. comes up inside you. I think it's I think it's a very common. Um, yeah, I think it is, and in fact, but I think its source is Christ. You don't have to. If you think right. about the New Testament, Jesus is constantly doing wonderful pe things for people who have no idea who he is and don't even know his name. You don't have to tick a bunch of theological boxes and sign up to a creed before Jesus will come within three feet of you. I mean, yeah. he's meant to be the the the, the logos, the the word that sustains everything. There's a sense in which he is constantly breathing everybody into being. Mm. Now, it's really, I'm not saying you don't need to, I mean, I think it's really important to know his name, and I think it's astonishing to know his name and to know that he came and what he did for us. That's really good. Right. But he's not, he's not limited. We're limited by our knowledge to some degree, although he keeps breaking it open. But he's not limited by our knowledge. Mm. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so, no, it's very interesting. This idea of yours, I agree with entirely that this happens more often. I think it happens a lot. And I think we, because we live in a very materialistic culture and we've privileged the mundane if you like or the and we tend to have a reductive philosophy and we call that normal i mean it's not normal it's only something that's happened in the last 300 years and most cultures don't have it well we've we've kind of normalized an untransfigured view of the world and for that reason people actually repress the experience because they don't want things people to think they're crazy or you know they have it you know so they just mm. don't talk about it but it happens one of the essays that really helped me and influenced me in trying to think these things through was an essay it's in a wonderful book by dorothy says published posthumously just uh, after her death uh, it's a collection of her late papers it's called the poetry of search and the poetry of statement mm. um but um there's an essay in it called the beatrician vision in dante and other poets now she calls it the Beatrician vision because she thinks that when Dante saw Beatrice and felt not only was she transfigured, but so was he and the whole of Florence was when he sort of saw her in her glory or he almost saw her the way God sees her. Um, what Dorothy Sayers wanted to maintain was that that wasn't just private to Dante and it doesn't have to be a romantic experience of a transfigured girl. It can be anything, you know, for words. So in this essay, she puts together about, 10 or 11 little passages drawn from everything from scripture to people's diaries to even Aldous Huxley's, um, you know, the doors of perception after he'd taken mescaline, you know, and she just says, look, there's a thing. So she starts with, um, with Moses at the burning bush, Exodus three. And then she goes on to a quote from William Blake. So this is Blake, she quotes, what it will be questioned, it's in a thing called the vision of judgment, which is more of a judgment, a vision. So this is Blake, what it will be questioned when the sun rises, do you not see a round disc of fire somewhat like a guinea? Oh no, 
No, I see an innumerable company of the heavenly host crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. <laughs> what do you see? So then she gives the transfiguration from Matthew. And then she gives this. Here's, here's, here's Aldous Huxley in The Doors of Perception, right? So this was published in what, the late 40s, early 50s? Um, Plato could never have seen as I was seeing a bunch. So he, Huxley is saying Plato is trying to abstract us out of this world, but the glory actually shines through it. So Plato could never have seen as I was seeing a bunch of flowers shining with their own inner light and all but quivering under the pressure of the significance with which they were charged, could never have perceived that what rose and iris incarnation so intensely signified was nothing more and nothing less than, than what they were, a transience that was yet eternal life, a perpetual perishing that was at the same time being, a bundle of minute, unique particulars in which by some unspeakable and yet self-evident paradox was to be seen the divine source of all existence. Words like grace and transfiguration came to my mind. And this is, of course, what, what among other things they stood for. Wow. Just looking at a bunch of flowers. See, and it's so interesting. A writer is not a believer. He has to reach for words like grace and transfiguration. Yeah. Well, that that's. I mean, there's so much in what you just said that I could go in a bunch of different directions. Uh, what what occurs to me is, uh, you know, one of the things I've been trying to shake off is an, an image of grace as being this random force. Um, you know, you, this person was given grace. This person was not given grace, according to oh, the no. according to the sort of inscrutable will of of God. Or then, and then people would claim that certain things were an act of grace, and then your mind explodes. Why wasn't there grace given in this other situation, and uh, or, or or whatever? But um, what kind of has recently started to form in my mind is the idea of grace. Um, grace is literally just the ability to see things as they really are um in other words there's there's a little bit of of it's not that we can put in effort towards grace so much right. as we we can um we can identify the desire to yeah. see but I think the thing is that those experiences, when they come, seeing things as they really are, those experiences of transfiguration, are not merely aesthetic experiences. They can't just be held in the category of the mind of which is labeled beauty. They are beautiful, of course. But the reason why grace, the reason why he says words like grace, grace is a redemptive, a kind of renewing, a reaffirming thing. So I remember I, preparing a couple for marriage once, and um, it, it, it it happens to say, I was going through the marriage service and it happens to say that, that uh, marriage is a means of grace, that it's a sacrament, that, that the grace of God comes to us. So I said to both of the couple, you know, what do you think grace means? What do, what do you understand grace to be? And um, the woman said to me, I mean, really, I mean, you know, this is one of these things where I was the clergyman, right? I was the guy with the theological training about grace. And this woman was about to teach me something astonishing and then gently and humbly reveal how she learned it. So I said, what do you think grace is? She said, grace is God's refusal to accept the ultimacy of failure in a person's life. 
It's when you you kind of lie down and turn your head to the wall or go into the gutter and say, that's it, I'm finished. There's nothing more for me or in me. And something in, in you, some voice refuses that failure, refuses it, says it's not ultimate. Grace is God's refusal to. So I said, where does that come from? Yet, so I think you're absolutely right. And she explained that she was a recovering alcoholic and that there was, you know, she was in a recovery and, and, and that in fact, everything in her, in terms of her own self-loathing resources, everything in her, from her psychological and material frame was giving up, was basically had had enough and was giving up. But somehow she didn't give up something something affirmed her and affirmed her enough yeah to make her want to transform things yeah it revealed something now, I think that itself. kind of grace is at work in these moments of transfiguration they're not just private aesthetic experiences mm. it's like i don't if you remember in um one of my favorite moments in um in uh, the magician's nephew if you remember is when you know by sort of random happenstance not only the you know Diggory and 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 Polly, but and and the Queen of Charm, but also Frank the cabbie, this kind of random, kindly old Cockney guy, Cockney cabbie, all find themselves standing in the pre-dawn darkness before the creation of a new world, and the first thing that happens, of course, is you know the stars sing and they come into and then they become aware of the lion. He's singing. He's singing creation into being. And then when they see the stars tingling in his in in all their glory, um, the cabbie's response is wonderful. He said, "He says, glory be." He says, "I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this." <laughs> you know, his first response is a kind of yeah. moral awakening, and yeah. then, and then you know, meantime, untransfigured by this, you know, and, and dig, uh, Uncle Andrew, Andrew Ketterly is trying to sneak towards the kids and get the rings and all of this and he's nattering away and saying when he sees the lamp start to grow he immediately sees the commercial possibilities and he's wanting <laughs> to fit and the cabbie says stow that row i want to hear the music so for frank the cabbie there's this i mean what's known as the the platonic triad isn't it um goodness truth and beauty if transfiguration is seeing things as they truly are and as they truly are is beautiful, there is also this goodness. Mm. And the goodness is not judgmental goodness. It's not like, oh, I've got grace, I'm good, you haven't, you're... On the contrary, the grace is precisely, as Paul says, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. You know, the grace finds you absolutely wherever you are in whatsoever condition you are mm. and wakes you up and changes you. What 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 arises in in my mind when you're saying this is that um, grace has uh, not that not that necessarily grace comes from us, but grace has a participatory or a relational um, uh, a effect to it. In other words, something in us. You know, I guess my some of my conditioning would have me believe that the thing to do in a moment of glory is to be as not there as possible <laughs> so that you don't sully it, you know, just see it, try to try to see oh, it yeah. and, and don't, you know, I mean, I guess what, cause, cause often you identify, if you're really present, you, you might identify something glorious in yourself or something beautiful, you know, like uh, that, that is revealed by the, by the thing, you know, maybe the resolve to, 
you know, because when you're an alcoholic and, and, and you get this sense that, um, your, your moment of final failure has been rejected, um, uh, you know, that, that doesn't mean you magically, um, you magically just become an automaton who walks their way out of uh, no, absolutely a situation. It, it has revealed something in yourself, uh, you know, and even even the even the glass darkly, you know, I mean, I've heard that as a mirror, um, you know, now we see things as as in a mirror. In a dim mirror. Yeah, that's, um, glass probably meant that in that sense. And it took me forever. Oh, it took me forever to realize that. There is significance to the fact that it's a mirror. It's a, you know, you're seeing yourself in the dark, the dark glass, you know, when you see God, you're seeing yourself in a dark glass. And I'm not saying that I'm God or that we need to accept that we are God, but it's, it's just so interesting how maybe a, a, an experience of, of glory or an experience of God is a revelation of something about yourself as well something yeah, about your, your humanity that jesus jesus also had humanity so that you you've yeah. seen that you have something in you that yeah. you didn't know exactly. about exactly so but what you see in jesus is the restored humanity this is where the kind of theology of fall and the the earlier theologies of fall are really helpful because when people talk about original sin but properly speaking the first thing that's really original is the goodness and the blessing God sees everything is good, including right. the human beings, the man and his wife. And in fact, um, we get this extra thing um, out of all creation. We get this thing that that God makes us in his own image. So what's now darkened, what's what we can now only see reflected in the dark glass as a result is our own, is the image of God. We can't quite see it. It's distorted. Yeah. But. <clears throat> One of the things that we understand about the, the birth of Jesus and, and his, his being born of Mary and Mary being a virgin, all of those things, what that symbolically means, setting aside the historicity, just the, symbolically what it means, is that Jesus, after, apart from Adam before the fall, whom we're never going to meet, the only fully alive, completely restored, because he never needed a completely perfect human being in whom that image, which is in fact in all of us, in whom that image is no longer obscured, but is radiant, we see is Jesus. And when they see him as he really is at the transfiguration. And there's one right sense in which they're also seeing themselves, not as they are, but as they will be, as they have the potential to be. And Paul really goes through that in a big way in Corinthians and elsewhere, where he says, we, what we are, we know, well, what we, we, we are to be, we do not yet know, but we are changed, changed from glory to glory. Mm. And that idea that even seeing for a moment any part of God would start to transfigure you, not just God, is, of course, there in the Moses thing. Another reason why Moses yep. is there right. is that um, when Moses sees, you know, God says to Moses, you know, you can't, you know, it's too much for you to see me and, you know, you know see my face, but hide in the cleft of the rock and look, you know, and I'll pass by. Uh, he'll show you my back or whatever. My hand upon my back, you know. And I think that's what Moses is kind of seeing the back. They're standing in front of Jesus. They got to see the face. Moses yeah. is seeing the back. Yeah. But even when Moses just sees the back, as it were, he comes down and he's no idea that he's been transfigured. His face is resplendent. And the children of Israel are like really freaked out. Right? And he, he ends up having to put this veil on <laughs> because of the radiance 
of a human being who is beginning to be transfigured into what they should be. The, the early church theologian who really got this and thought about it was St. Irenaeus. And Irenaeus has a famous saying in which he says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. I've heard that, yeah. By which he meant Jesus, but he didn't just mean Jesus. He meant all of us in Jesus. You have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God, says Paul. This transfiguration, because it is still fully human as well as fully glorious, is a foretelling or a, a showing of what we are called to be and will be if we let grace transfigure us. But we're not, we're not it now. Yep. But we do keep seeing it. You do see it. We either see it transfiguring in the landscape or, we, you, know, you know, in the end, God is going to say, behold, I, I make all things new. I mean, the great promise is that the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Or again, when he says about his coming, he says, don't say, oh, he's there, or he's over there. It'll be like the lightning that shines from the east to the west. What we're looking for is this complete transfiguration, which you know is the heart of the Christian hope. But to keep us going, to keep us going, we get by grace, these little glimpses. Little glimpses. And the little glimpses aren't, um, they're not like random, little dots of gold, you know, in the kind of speckled pattern of our life. It's much more like if you were looking at a tapestry and you kept seeing little dots of gold. If you turned the thing around, you'd realize they were a consistent golden thread. Oh, uh, yeah. Just <laughs> popping up. But they're oh, all kind very of, nice. <laughs> they're all part of the same thing. Now, that idea is an idea um, which, is, which is there in the works of another mystical poet. I mean, who I believe to be a Christian poet, although a lot of Christians can't handle him and think he's too freaky, but I think he's fantastic. And that's William Blake, whom we've already quoted. Yeah, oh, so I love William Blake. Blake. In one of his poems says, I give you the end of a golden string and you wind it into a ball and it will lead you to heaven's gate fast in Jerusalem's war mm. you know this golden it's not a it's not a series of isolated episodes it's a golden string you know yeah 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 no, and I, I feel like the more of those moments that that I've had the more you it feels like a string uh, you know yeah, uh, and yeah. String, it's in fact interestingly that golden string I mean Lewis of course knew that passage in Blake and um Dom Bede Griffiths, um, Bede Griffiths was a chap who was a, a very good friend and, and brilliant pupil of Lewis's with whom he corresponded a lot and who eventually became a, a, a monk. Um, he was a Catholic, he became a monk and eventually he went to India and, India and founded a sort of Catholic ashram there. Hmm. Um, but he wrote a, a spiritual autobiography kind of after Lewis wrote Surprised by Joy. He was having similar experiences and he wrote to Lewis about this quite a lot. And his spiritual autobiography is called The Golden String. Hmm. <laughs> it's about that. He's an interesting character, Don Bigo. I mean, he's died now, but... but um, I'll, I'll uh, look him up. Yeah. Um, so something that, something that uh, came, came to mind when you were saying that um, about Moses is, and, and maybe, this is re maybe this is reaching, but it, it, uh, it feels like the, that glimpse of you know, yourself as you should be and you're, you know, man fully alive could, could be comparable to the, the actual um, search or for the um, for the promised land and that the promised land could be uh, this thing that we're sort of 
consistently searching, you know, consistently moving towards, um, even though we've we've never been there, and it's this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. And 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 I think it's interesting that Moses didn't make it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very most poignant and sort of tragic things in the whole arc of that narrative. But and he sees it. He sees it. He goes up again onto a mountain. Yeah, and they send some scouts. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, he goes onto the mountain. And of course, Martin Luther King in the famous I Have a Dream speech was channeling that in terms of hope, where he says, where he says in that speech, I've, I've been up to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I may not, I mean, you know, he says almost anticipating his own death, I may not make it. Chills. You know, he's yeah. riffing on that. And, and yeah, that's, I mean, it's so interesting. I, something that also just came to my mind that I'd never really thought about is when, they, when they're nearing the promised land, they send out the scouts. Yeah, yeah. Have a look. And they come back full of anxiety. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and I, I think that's actually, that's actually, I, I resonate for the first time in my life at, at this moment. I'm resonating with that as, as a sense of when you get that sense of who you should be, and you think maybe you're changing, you know, very glacially towards it. There's an anxiety about that future state. You know, what is, you know, what, I, I don't know. It, it's sort of the banality tries to, yeah. to creep the, in I again. Yeah, it tries to come back. But also because advancing glacially is a fair enough one way to put it. But there's another way to put it, which is, is a series of deaths and resurrections. I mean, in the end, the Jordan is a death and resurrection. That's why sure. baptism happens in the Jordan. It's going down and, and coming up. And you have to kind of keep um, letting go. In fact, when they come down from the mountain, the first saying that, that you get from Jesus is, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. But if it dies, it yields a rich harvest. And he's not just talking about his own crucifixion and resurrection. He's talking about the pattern. To, to experience this transfiguration, to get the thing which is promised in these glimpses involves a letting go of everything that's not that, a letting go of the false in order to receive the true. But mm. we're very mm. used to the false. We find the false very comforting. You know, it's the usual yeah. thing. We can know it. We can, we can contain the false. Yeah. That's what I find. We can so, own the false. <laughs> so, uh, maybe I would be relevant another poem here. Um, I recently um, published at the beginning of um, last year a, a book called David's Crown, which is a, a series of 150 linked poems, all responding to the Psalms. So I, I'm, I'm meditating on each Psalm and, and I'm not like doing a fresh translation. I'm just finding something in the Psalm that spurs me on to some other moment. And I'm often interpreting the Psalms mystically and you know, Christocentrically. But one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 27. Um, which in our in our Coverdale translation, our 16th century translation that's in our Book of Common Prayer, they still have the Latin titles, which are basically the first words of the psalm in Latin. So this one is Dominus Illuminatio, but but uh, you know God enlighten me, you know, transfigure me. But but Psalm 27 is amazing in lots of ways, and one of the things that's most amazing about it is that little bit right in the middle. It's around verse nine, I think where in our early translation, the psalmist said, says, my heart has said of thee, seek his face. 
thy face, Lord, I will seek. Now, that's an astonishing thing because he's, that's right in the middle of the Old Testament. And one of the Old Testament dicta about God is no man sees my face and lives. Hmm. That's what Moses has to shield himself from going, you know. So, and everybody accepts that, that God is so holy that you can't see his face. You know, when Isaiah finds himself lifted up, he doesn't go, oh, wow, I've had a religious experience, man. I must be holy. You know, Isaiah goes, woe is me. You know, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean Like, I shouldn't even be here. But nevertheless, even though I shouldn't even be here from my own sense of my sin, I want nothing more than to be here. I want to see that face. But I know, so, so this is the poem I, I wrote about that psalm, which for me, I mean, the psalm is also full of lots of beautiful nature, is actually about what happens experience of transfiguration for me I, I mean occasionally i see it in somebody else you know when they're singing and wish but it mostly happens to me when i'm on my own in a word or by a sea or you know it happens through nature hmm. and i'm never quite sure what to make of it and i'm not saying it doesn't happen all the time but every so often it happens and um when i see things like that i have a feeling that i'm seeing them through the eyes of god that, that i'm seeing them as they actually are but as they actually are is also how they will be when we're finally redeemed, you know? So <clears throat> this is, this is a kind of cry of prayer in response to Psalm 27. Oh, let me see with his eyes from now on, whose gaze on beauty makes it beautiful, who looks us into love and looks upon his whole creation with a merciful and loving eye. My heart has said of him, seek out his face. I've sensed his bountiful presence shimmering behind the dim veil of things. That presence calls to me, calls me to tremble at the brink and rim of lived experience. And then to free myself of fear, to trust him and to dive right off that brink into his mystery, into that deep and holy sea of love in which the living worlds all float and swim, to dare each moment's death that I might live. I love it. It's like, uh, it, it's, a, it's a transcendent way to think about living, uh, living Christ's death. Yeah, uh, as not every this... moment, yeah, because every moment is a death, and you know, as 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 Elliot says, you know, every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all we have been. You know, it's just you know, yeah. but every moment is a completely new beginning, if you let it be. I have a friend who is um, profoundly um, depressed, and and uh, she has um, attempted suicide multiple times. And uh, recently was asking, uh, she has, she has a, a deep faith and was recently asking, uh, you know, about just for thoughts on death and that kind of thing. And, and what, when you read that poem, what came to me was a feeling that um, we've got our narrative about death flipped around to where we see death I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to ex express a, a new thought, so forgive me. It's probably going to be clumsy. Um, 
and maybe wrong, but we, we see death as, um, or we, we, if, we, if we think about being like Christ and his death, what we think about is with weighty resolve, giving up ourselves with a great sense of the knowledge of the significance of what we're doing and a great kind of uh, agency uh, in the death. You know what I mean? Like when I picture dying like Christ, what I picture, you know, when I was younger, what I would picture was some Nazi equivalent saying, holding a gun to my head and saying, uh, deny the Lord, you know, like you have these sort of, you almost have these, yeah, these fantasies yeah. of, of persecution yeah. that come up, deny the Lord. And then I say with, with, you know, saintly resolve on my face, I will not, uh, I, I would yeah. sooner die. And then, and then being shot, you know, like you picture these moments of great, um, yeah. not only agency, but of kind of the knowledge of the significance. So you say, you, you say, yeah. I'm going to be like Christ in his death. And that means I will know fully that this death that I am, you know, whether it be metaphorical or real, that this death I am dying is, is going to have a wonderful transformative impact on the world. And so I will deign to do it. I, you know, I will, yeah, I will yeah. give up my wonderful life. And, and what, what we're yeah, just, I see, I see uh, where you're coming from. And it's kind of a bit histrionic, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously there are real martyrdoms like that, and some of them, of course, are, you know, are genuine glory. But I think what I was talking about, you know, when I say in the last line of that poem, "To dare each moment's death that I might live," I'm thinking about simply letting go that inner narrative, that constant self-appraisal that's going on, that that self-justifying monologue that makes it that you know sets you up over against other people and all that stuff just to let it go and say, I, I'm not talking myself into existence. I'm a word from God. He's breathing me into existence right now. I can relax and let him do it. I don't have to call the shots. I don't have to be the person who decides everything. I can let God speak me and do his will in me and actually articulate me. And that means letting go of my egotistical, slightly cruddy version of the way this is supposed to go, <laughs> and letting him do it. And that can come if you happen to be on on a on a on a height and you've just constructed in your own private narrative a glorious little niche for yourself, you know, like Peter trying to build a niche for you know, then you may have to that may be dismantling that may be quite a heavy thing and it may be quite a deliberate thing, but it works the other way around as well. One of my I, I'm a great fan of of Coleridge, as you know, and um, Coleridge was a very early campaigner against the slave trade, and became friends. Um, with the guy that uh, not, uh, he didn't know of Wilberforce, but the guy that had actually recruited, my mind is going blank now, I can't try to remember his name, but the guy that recruited Wilberforce to the cause was a guy uh, who, um, um, golly, Thomas, somebody, anyway, uh, this, this guy um, who was the bloke who did all the research and interviewed all the sea captains that had been slavers and got the facts and figures about it. And they brought it to parliament every Thomas Clarkson, Thomas Clarkson. And um, he, you know, it took years and years. They kept putting a petition to parliament. It was blindingly obvious that this should be abolished. And they were saying, oh no, no, there's good economic reasons why we need it. And, you know, it was only the force of this little Christian groups, so-called Clapham sect, you know, Wilberforce and Co. that finally got the legislation through, but it took about 30 years. 
during which they had to really, you know, the reason why it kept going slavery for so long was basically nobody wanted to know the horrible facts behind cheap sugar, you know, <laughs> and you know, I mean, they just did, they just wanted to put the sugar in their tea and forget about it. So you had to keep presenting it, but the people who had to keep presenting it were constantly aware therefore of this appalling waste and human suffering. And there came a point where Thomas Clarkson got to, I mean, he fell into a serious depression and his friends got him a little <laughs> cottage in the Lake District to just go and recover. He just collapsed, he couldn't do it anymore. And he, he got to know Coleridge and Wordsworth who were obviously up there. And he wrote a letter, despairing letter to Coleridge saying, I, I don't think I can go on. And he says, it's not just that I've lost my will to keep going on this hopeless cause, but actually, I don't have any idea of the divine anymore. When it says his spirit searches our spirit, I don't know what spirit means. I just have no idea of the divine. Can you help me? And Coleridge sent him back this magnificent letter in which, in which he said, he said, my dear Clarkson, he said, you may have no idea of the divine, but let me assure you, you are a divine idea. You are one of the divine ideas. You, God made you up and thought you up and brought you into being. You were there in the mind of the Logos in the beginning. You're one of the things that were made without, through him, without, you are, he is, he's, he's thinking you and speaking you right now. You don't have to have any idea of him. What's important is his idea of you. You are a divine idea. And as he speaks to you, you and I, he says, are little Logoi, little words. In the, in, 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 in the speech of the Logos. And then he says, so, so pick yourself up. And he says, he says, try not to be an impediment in the speech of Christ. <laughs> you, know, you know, don't let Jesus get tongue-tied as he tries to speak you into who you should be. Yeah. And that picks Clarkson up and turns him around. Yeah. yeah. And it could even be that it's important, I don't know about for him at that time, but it could be that it's important for us to have those moments where we have to drop... Uh, the the sense, you know, because uh, I recognize that a good portion of my um, my sense of of myself in the positive sense it could be misguided. I I, I could be wrong about myself, you know. I could be uh, I don't know how to describe what I'm saying, but like that that revelation that you're, yeah, I think that's very true. That that we're the words of God. It 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 opens us up to to say, okay, let, let me discover myself again. Let, let me discover what, what I have been blind to. And mm. the, the more of a picture you have of yourself, the harder it is to maybe seek out those, yeah. those but things. But then what happens, if you keep bringing your picture of yourself such as it is, some of which would be perfectly good and perfectly true, some of which will be a polite fiction. But um, if, you keep, if you keep bringing that to God, and then hearing him, he can retell it. He's constantly reframing your narrative. To give mm. you an example, again, from Lewis, I mean, one of my favorite sequences, actually, in any of the Narnia books, is where is in The Horse and His Boy, when, you know, Shasta, having run away, and he's come back, and he's ended up going, running and running and running and getting to the castle of King Loon, and he actually delivers the message of the coming invasion such that they're able to prepare yeah. themselves the but he doesn't realize it he's no idea that he's part of this big story he just goes on and he carries on wandering like everybody ignores him because they're busy defending the castle he's just a kid 
So he ends up walking over this mountain pass in thick fog. In fact, there's a terrible precipice on one side, but isn't there? And he becomes aware of this presence, this thing, this other walking beside him. He tries to ignore it. And then he finally, he can't bear it any longer. And he says, who are you? And this voice says, it's wonderful. The voice says, one who has waited long to hear you speak. Tell me your story. Which is exactly, of course, like Jesus on the road to Emmaus coming to the disciples and saying, why are you guys so sad? What's the problem? Tell yeah. me. So then Shasta begins his narrative, which is in a sense the narrative that we've already heard, you know, because we've read the story. But he says, oh, you know, I had a terrible time and I was alone then. I, my father was, you know, and then I had to, to, to spend the night at the tombs and there was this weird cat that came and then, you know, I was riding along and we were pursued by lions. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you believe it? And then we went somewhere else. <coughs> there was another lion and so on. And he finishes the, the story and he says, do you think I was, there was ever such an unfortunate boy or you look how lonely and I've been. <laughs> and the voice says, you were never alone. I was the cat that kept watch over you by the tombs. I was the lion that rushed towards your horse and gave you and the horse the extra strength to run that extra bit. And what you don't know is that I was the lion that pushed the little boat to the shore where a fisherman waited so that you would be nurtured, you know. And then gradually the fog lifts and of course he sees Aslan, you know, and um, as an, as, as a threefold affirmation of who he is, myself, myself, you know, which is a country. So what happens there is that Shasta gives his narrative as he understands it. And Jesus doesn't, I mean, Naslan doesn't take away any of that narrative, but he completely gives and says, look, all this time, did you not see this? Did, this is where you, this is what you were for. This is what you were doing. And as Shasta allows his own story to be retold to him, by the one who is the great story maker who's you know who, who is you know and that's i think what happens sometimes now that if you like is a kind of little death we stop being the person in a sense we thought but we become who we really are mm -hmm. because we, we're listening to the one who's making us who we are so so it's a kind of restoration as well yeah um and i mean i think po possibly as well as riffing on the road to Emmaus, lewis was possibly riffing on the great moment in saint augustine's confessions quite early on, which Confessions, as you know, is addressed to God. It's not addressed to the reader. We just overhear mm. yeah. Augustine trying to get his act together with God. And there's a great bit when he's been going into like minute detail about all the stuff he's guilty about. And there's the famous bit where he like, he went over into the neighbor's garden and stole a pear because not because he needed pears or even like, but just for the pleasure of stealing them and all this stuff. And then he goes, he suddenly says to God, but wait a minute, he says, he says why am I telling you this? What is the point of my telling you all this? You know, anyway, you're God, you have complete knowledge. You know, you are truth. What's the point of my telling this to you? And then he answers himself. He says, ah, now I know why I'm telling it this to you because you are truth and I'm not truth. And I can only become truth by telling my story to the truth. Mm. And then you will tell me, which means. <laughs> well, so I, I guess what, what that, that, that's all really great. Uh, I, I love that. And I'm wondering if like, so this podcast is actually not typically this uh, um, explicitly 
based in in faith uh, um, yeah, well, no, and, and i'm wondering uh it, like i'm wondering what is the way that we start uh you know what is the way that we start this process of sort of telling our story and and maybe maybe it's maybe it's sim- as simple as that just start telling it to yourself or or what it like i guess what i'm wonder wanting to give people is a sense like um because I've experienced this myself, just a, a a sense that there is a that there is a a path that they that they can walk, like that there is yeah. um, that there is something that they can do, and it and it isn't um, get your ass into a church pew and well, no, start, I mean, start no, learning the scriptures like a discipline yeah. and obviously I'm drawing on all these things because that's the well from which I'm drawing the water, and I I I naturally use those terms. But let's go back to that image of the golden string, the golden thread, that you have these moments of transfiguration. And they might be moments of realization about the world, or there might be moments of realization about yourself. Our culture, our secular culture, is trying to damp those down and not talk about them and and psychologize them away, right? Mm. So the first thing you have to do is really notice those and enjoy them and and wonder what they mean and see if you can feel your way onto the golden string that connects those golden moments. Yeah. And I think you can do that wherever you are and whoever you are, whether you have a whether you have a faith or not. I mean, there's quite an interesting distinction that's arisen in a lot of discourse at the moment, a distinction between religion and spirituality. Mm. Religion is the organized thing with all the creeds and the dogmas and and spirituality is this thing that happens to people and is an experience. I mean, uh, and spirituality just doesn't just happen at these high moments, you know, it happened for that woman who was trying to roll over in the gutter and found that something was in her or through her was refusing her refusal, you know, was refusing the ultimacy of failure. That was spirituality. I once helped to lead a poetry group in a in a in a in a mental hospital, a psychiatric hospital, with my friend who was a chaplain there, and um, it was quite a tricky thing to get in because obviously, because the way everything gets medicalized, a lot of the doctors saw religion as part of the problem rather than part of the solution, and they. But actually, so we had to, I was in there, I was, they sort of smuggled me in as a poet, really. And I was doing like a poetry workshop, which I was very happy to do. Anyway, there's a woman there who, who one of the things we realized was that it was okay to talk about spirituality, but not okay to talk about religion in terms of the ethos of the hospital, the secular mm. hospital. So we began with this distinction between spirituality and religion. And this woman who, who uh, suffered from occasional psychotic episodes and had you know, was dealing with schizophrenia as a long-term thing in her life. It was a perfectly wonderful and, you know, articulate woman. So we were saying, what is the difference between spirituality and religion? All of us here in this room might have either different religions or no religions, but can we accept that there is a spiritual, a common spiritual? So this woman stood up, she said, she said, I can tell you the difference uh, between religion and spirituality. She said, religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell spirituality is for people who've been there <laughs> you know oh <laughs> uh, uh, yeah that's I've interesting that. yeah you know um so yeah i i mean i i'm not only a christian i believe i mean i actually believe christianity is true so i think that in the end if you really did follow the golden thread yeah. um it would lead you to jerusalem's wall and you would get an astonishing surprise and wonderful good news and discover that all this time 
you are a lost child of God and you would be welcomed into glory. It would be wonderful. But I don't need to drop that on top of anybody with a pile of Bibles from a great height <laughs> while they're trying to work this stuff out. Yeah. Because I trust that that is the case, right? Yeah. I would just say to you, go with the experience, follow the thread, look for the goodness and truth and beauty where, you know, all of, in my yeah. view, all of that belongs to God and you won't get lost if you find it. Yeah. If you look, you know, seek and you will find. So Jesus doesn't say, follow this exact creed. He says, he says, knock and the door will be open to you. You know, ask right. and you'll be answered, seek and you will find. I would say that to anybody. I wouldn't rush in to kind of program what they're doing. The danger of doing that is that you end up sort of, they end up, you, you sell them short, you know, you, you hand them a handy quick formula that represents the results, if you like, of a long lifetime's working out before they've done the lifetime's working out and they right. don't know what it means, you know? Yeah. yeah. But they think they've got it, you know? Uh, yeah. So actually you have to be very, very careful. If, you, if you're a Christian as I am, you trust that people are not actually going to miss the ground of being, you know, mm. if, if God is the ground of all being, he really doesn't need people going around like sort of double glazing salesmen trying to, you know, <laughs> advertise him, but he does need people to let the world know that they live in a spiritual realm and that this idea that's just been about for about two or 300 years in the West, that really it's just a, a, a piece of material bouncing atoms and consciousness is an accident right. none of it Dead matter. They need to be delivered from that and obviously i hope and pray and believe that the ground of all being having become a human being in christ will meet them one way or another mm. but, you know shasta has that significant conversation on a mountain ridge in the fog with he knows not whom right how would you how would you describe then for someone for whom the word spirituality is totally tainted? Um, you know, like I've got a good friend who I, I will I, we talk about deep matters and he's a deep guy. Um, but whenever I use a word like I'll just throw in I'm like you where this is the language of my 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 brain and I'll throw in the word sin or something, uh, you know, not not meaning it in a convicting way, you know, trying to like throw it at him. But uh, and, and then uh, invariably he will say. I I think I know what you mean, but you use the word sin, you know, and like, oh, yeah, I can't, I can't like I don't I know you, you know, I think it's important not to use it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, it seems reasonable to use what they call the language of Zion in this conversation, but it can be it can be very putting instead of sin, you can just say the human condition. Yeah. You know? and, and, and yes. And I think it's, a, I mean, it's often a slip of the tongue and I'm not necessarily, you know, I guess I'm just wondering how would you, how would you describe the spiritual realm or spirituality to someone for whom that concept is, yeah. is totally corrupted? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because for us, the word religion or the word Christianity might be off-putting for someone, but generally, in on perhaps just on our side of the world, the word spirituality doesn't seem to be a bad word for people. People seem to accept that and and like it simply as a word, just that specific word. You know, but yeah. I I think I mean I think one of the things I would want to do before I said anything, if that's the way the conversation was going, would be to hear from that person about their own experience 
and say, I mean, it's like Aldous Huxley having the experience with the vase of flowers and then saying he reaches for words that are not part of his normal vocabulary. He says words like grace and transcendence came to mind. But then he goes on to say what they were amongst other things. So I would be wanting to say something, have you ever had that feeling that suddenly for a minute, everything is lucid and comes together and means something and then it's lost again? Or how is it for you when you walk out under the stars? You know, and I might say, let's take two completely different reactions to it. You've got Pascal in his pensée looking up at the stars, he says, le silence éternel de ces vastes espaces m'effraie. So the eternal silence of these vast spaces frightens me, right? And you've got the book of Psalms saying, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Those are two different, genuine, and quite frequently experienced human experiences when you consider the vastness of the cosmos. Now, and sometimes the same person has both, you know, they, 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 you know, or they move from one to the other or in different moods, they feel one or the other. How is it with you? You know, when you contemplate these vast things, what goes through your mind? Do you feel anything deeper? Stuff? You know, they, they, they're finding that out. Mm. So yeah. then you're trying to hear from them on their occasion, on their... Yeah. Yeah, and no, and that's uh, and I guess I guess that's great. And I, the point of I'm I'm not looking for ways to convince anyone of anything either, right? It's just uh, I just I sometimes feel uh, a weight when I when I sense that. Uh, well, you know, I guess as I as I perhaps awaken a little bit, I I want I I want to help other people. Yeah, uh, but I mean, these things take a long. I mean, yeah. I, went, I was brought up in a Christian household, but I didn't stay Christian. I really rejected it very, very thoroughly when I was about 14 or 15. And I went to the opposite extreme in the sense that I went for completely reductive scientific materialism, which is a position I held for four or five years. And I, you know, I, I mean, in those days, we didn't have Richard Dawkins, but we had B.F. Skinner, which is pretty similar sort of reductive behaviorist kind of thing. But then I had, I had an experience of transcendence or transfiguration, which took place not in any religious context at all. It actually put, took place in Keats's house in Hampstead Heath. I was taken there by an aunt of mine, you know, and I said, oh, golly, you know, who's this boring old father? I don't know anything about this. And then, of course, I realized this is an amazing, passionate young man in love with a girl next door, dying of consumption, writing his poetry. And they happened to have the words of the Ode to a Nightingale up on the wall actually in the room where you could see the, the, the casements opening into the garden where the tree was, where the nightingale sang. So it's like literally reading it where it happens. And that poem, I was a very deeply pissed off and depressed 16-year-old, uh, really not having a good time and uh, stuck in this boarding school in England and homesick. And everything. Anyway, you may remember that poem starts very, very unpromisingly. Um, for one of the greatest poems ever written. It's just, it, it, it begins in my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and lethe words had sunk. So I'm just standing randomly hoping we can go somewhere more interesting, reading the poem on the wall. And I'm going, oh man, I know what you mean. Like, you know, 
well, you know, like ache, dull, sunk, drains, you know, he's coming down from opium. I, I, I totally get you. And I was sort of drawn into the poem through this empathy in the kind of dull, thudding, sunkness of things. And then, of course, suddenly the poem shifts. He sees his when he goes, you know, tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in a full-throated ease. And I thought, oh my goodness, was it? I didn't, no language could sound like that. And then you remember in the poem, he goes out into the dark, you know, to try and hear the bird more, but like, it's almost like sentry. He says, you know, I cannot tell what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness, guess each sweet, and he goes out, you know, it's, it's richly sensual, you know, through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. And he hears the bird again, it's getting a bit further away each time. And then he suddenly has this image in his mind about how this sound has been heard by human beings in all kinds of stages in life, ever since there have been people, right? The self-same song, you know, was heard by emperor and clown. And then he suddenly out of nowhere remembers, you know, he's not a Christian either, but he vaguely remembers this story about Ruth, you know, sick for home. And he says, the self-same song that found you to the sad heart of Ruth, when sick for home, she stood in tears amidst the alien corn. So for him, for everybody, this bird is producing these longings and the bird is still there. He says, you know, thou wast not born for death, immortal bird, now hungry generations tread thee down. And then suddenly out of nowhere, like it's not a logical sequence in the poem, just towards in the last second from last verse, he produces this image of the bird charming open windows. He says to open window case, magic casements opening on perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. And then the poem turns, forlorn. The very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to mm. myself. But just for a minute, it's like at the back of the poem, there are these magic windows opening onto something. Yeah. I read that poem and I was just completely, it was just transfiguring. And I read it again and again. And I, before I walked into the room, I was absolutely convinced that every single human experience, however apparently lofty or whatever it was, was basically the accidental byproduct of selfish genes replicating and unwinding enzymes and sort of random electrochemical signaling in the physicality of the brain. It had nothing beyond that. And insofar as we experienced it, it's in any sense, you know, transcendent, that was a complete delusion. Right. It was, you know, consciousness was an accidental epiphenomena of the mere working out of stuff. Mm. That was my view. Now, at the end of that experience of reading and re <clears throat> I realized that something had happened. And I thought, well, whatever else this is or was or was for Keats and is for me now, it's not just a chemical reaction. It may be a chemical reaction in my brain as well, but it's not just that. Mm. Something happened here. Mm. Now, that didn't make me a Christian. It didn't, but it cracked open this kind of concrete carapace that I put over the deep well of consciousness, the deep well of poetry. Like I, I'd concreted it over because I didn't want any of that stuff. Hmm. This poem just cracked it open and said, "Hey, guy, you know this the step there, you know." <laughs> and I realized after that I had to reckon with the transcendent or the spiritual. Hmm. It took me years before I thought it had anything to do with Christianity. Right, but 
I wouldn't be talking to you now if I hadn't had that experience with that poem mm. as a 16 year old. Now, was that a religious experience? No, it, what, but it wasn't. It was a quote unquote spiritual experience. It was something happened there. And I've come to feel that I'm not the only person that things like that happen to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And it's so personal. That's the, that is the, the thing is like, you know, <laughs> if we were to be uncle Andrew about it, we would start uh, bringing people to that room in a big long line and saying, here, have your spiritual experience. You know, yeah, exactly. no, <laughs> and you people wouldn't, would wouldn't say, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> if I went back to that room, nothing would happen. Right. Yeah. It's, it's an, in, it's in that, in that moment, in and out of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So all I'm saying is I think, I don't think that experience is confined to card carrying Christians. <laughs> By no means. I, don't, I think it's universal. Yes. I do think that it's not properly accounted for by the kind of the kind of reductive atomizing science that's gripping the mind at the moment. Yeah. And that reductive atomizing science is kind of on its way out anyway. I mean, there's a lot of people finding all kinds of difficulty with yeah. it, you know. Well, um, the, oh, sorry, the, go ahead. Actually, you know, neuropsychologists are, are getting more and more mystical by the day, you know. Mm. So, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, no, I talked to Bernardo Castro on the show, you know, um, anyway, that, that, that's what it is. What it is. Yeah, uh, and, and the thing that what's so great is, um, I think that, you know, defining where you're, where you're going to end up um, in, in strict terms can kill that moment. Like, because the idea of the Nightingale magically opening windows uh is is just the idea that the person inside the room has heard this sound that they might not even know the source of this very slight sound that they just want a little bit they want to hear a little bit more clearly and they do the one the one simple act of opening the window and yeah. and they don't have to know you know <laughs> I, I think that is the spirit that's that's the profound spiritual moment yeah. It's, yeah, and I mean, at the, at, the, at the end of it, the poem, it's interesting, it's very honest, because it, it recognises not only that the moment is transcendent, but also that it's, that it's transitory, that it's passing. So it finishes forlorn, the very word is like a bell that tolls me back from thee to my soul self. Farewell. The fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do. But then he keeps hearing the bird, it's getting further, further, further. And the last lines of the poem are... Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? You know, yeah. Am I coming back to something or have I just woken up? I know. Right. Kind of teasing thought that he's yeah. experienced a kind of change of consciousness and now he doesn't quite know what to do with or how to assess the consciousness that he's gone back to. Yeah. <laughs> a more, more usual consciousness. Well, the honesty is one one of the things that makes it, uh, you know, makes it so spiritually vibrant. Because I think, yeah, like uh, ending ending with a conclusion. Here's what all this meant. You know, it, no, no. again, it's this. It you know, it ends with a completely open question. Yeah, yeah. You kind of almost kill it if you. you know, it me, you know. Yeah. Well, if you, you know. file it away. Yeah. Well, no, that's oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Um, I just the, earlier you you talked about the the sun being a guinea the that 
um, the Blake yeah. thing. And it uh, just, this is apropos of not what we're saying right now, but not totally unrelated. Have you ever heard the poem called the Gayatri or the prayer called the Gayatri? No, I didn't think so. Um, it's, it's really, really ancient. I can't remember where it came from. Maybe, maybe it's hint. Maybe it's Hindu, um, but uh, it's um, it's. Uh, let me see if I can bring it up because it it's like it parallels the William Blake poem. Um, oh, thou who givest sustenance to the universe, from whom all things proceed, to whom all things return, reveal to us the face of the true spiritual sun, hidden by a disk of golden light, that we may do our full duty uh, that we may know the truth that I may know the truth and do my full duty as I journey to thy sacred feet. Yeah, that's very good. Which is a good it's one. I, about, sorry. Well, I, I was just saying I am, I'm, I'm working at the moment on a sequence of Arthurian poems. Yes. And I'm, I'm trying to see how the sort of mother, more mystical and magical side of our pre-Christian stuff was, was woven into and became part of so one of the things I'm thinking about is, is you know, because you have all these, it's almost as though the landscape of England herself kind of comes to life in various ways, you know, with the ladies of the lake and that kind of thing. But I'm I'm trying to think, and I've just got a bit, I just might see if I can get it for you. I mean, I'll have to wind this up fairly soon, but um, yeah. I've got a bit where uh, in the story, I'm talking about a character called Andran, who's this sort of mysterious woman who, who ends up with the magic ship taking the Grail Knights to the castle, you know, of the Grail. And Mallory, who is my main source, doesn't tell you anything about how she came to the ship or anything or who she is, really. So I've been writing, as it were, a bit of her backstory, which includes her... Um, she goes off into, into uh, the woods to pray and meditate with her aunt, who's a hermitess. And I... I um, I'll uh, just read you a couple of verses where Dandran, who's the heroine here, is learning from this wise woman in a hermitage in the middle of these woods how to fast and pray. And um, then I'm trying to describe her experiences. So um, she taught Dandran the way of prayer, the way to still her soul, the way to woo each beast and bird, to know each creature as a word breathed into being by our Lord, for God himself is the true bard and sings creation through his word. And Dandran learned from all she heard and knew each star, each stone, each bird as parts of one great whole. By night, she kept her vig pure vigil there and morning came too soon, for she would see the stars wheel by and hear their music from on high and feel their influence and cry in ecstasy when she'd descry a sphere of silver light draw nigh. Then she would lift her eyes and spy above the valley's chalice high, the wafer of the moon. So she's experiencing <laughs> the whole of creation as a kind of sacrament. She doesn't need, you know, in that sense, the church and everything. Right. Yes. The, the moon, the moon as a wafer. That's really good. Wow. I, anyway, so that's a little taste of what, what's to come. It's wow. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. And so I'll, I'll just, we can end now. And, and this has been for me just really, really wonderful. Um, I don't often li listen back to these conversations very much because I find it hard to hear my own 
self-talk, but I think this is one I'm going to listen to again in full just to kind of let it soak in. So I, I really appreciate you uh, taking time to speak with me today. Okay, that's great. I'm going to need to sort of um, sign off now. And um, Okay, ha uh, have a great rest of your day. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thanks.